Wish your family and friends a sweet new year with Jewish Boston's free Rosh Hashanah e-cards. Pick from any of our unique designs, write your own message, and hit send. It's that easy. Go to jewishboston.com slash cards to send yours today. Welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. Yom Kippur is one of two days circled on the twice-a-year Jews calendar for reasons of tradition, guilt, the benefits of intermittent fasting, and perhaps a few others. Broad strokes, it makes me feel kind of sad and appropriately contemplative. I forget all that by 3.30. At that point, I am ready to eat my couch cushions. When it's over, I feel a burden has been lifted. But, fellow twice-a-yearers, I learned from today's guest, Hannah Carney, that there's a lot more to know about this complex and perhaps misunderstood holiday. That's right, Dan. In this episode, we're going to get into the origin story of Yom Kippur. Yes, like Batman, Yom Kippur has an origin story. Hannah is a Jewish educator, visual artist, and fellow podcaster. Currently, Hannah is pursuing her master's through HUC, Jewish Institute of Religion, and serves as the director of Havaya, the teen community at Temple Beth Elohim in Wellesley. She's an apprentice of Torah scholar Rabbi Alan Ullman, who we also love. Hannah hosts a podcast with him called Text Messages, which is, other than the vibe of the tribe, perhaps the best name for a Jewish podcast. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. I have about 17 pages of notes strewn across my desk because I had so much fun researching a little bit and gathering my thoughts for this podcast. So for a tour nerd like me, this is like the most exciting way to spend a a morning. So thank you. We are so happy that you're willing to do that because uh, we too are Torah nerds. And I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to do a little bit of a deep dive. So many Jews are familiar with Yom Kippur as the most important holiday in the Jewish calendar year. There are very rigid rules about what to do and what to not do on Yom Kippur. It's 25 hours of complete fasting and other afflictions of the self to better focus on apologizing and repenting for sins against our fellow humans and against God. So through the Day of Atonement, we cleanse our souls for the year ahead. And Jews have been observing Yom Kippur for thousands of years. But let's look at the origin story of this most important day in the Jewish calendar cycle. Let's start in the beginning, as it were. How is Yom Kippur first introduced in the Tanakh, which is Torah and Jewish scriptures? So I'm going to start first with my relationship to Yom Kippur, and then I'm going to get into how it is introduced in the Torah. I am a Yom Kippur outsider. I did not observe any Jewish ritual or holidays for my entire childhood up until when I turned 13. And so um, when I was 13, my parents joined a synagogue, not related to 
becoming bi mitzvah. It was just sort of the moment where they decided to reconnect. Grew up on a farm in rural Pennsylvania. And so when we decided to do Jewish things, we went full force and we did Shabbat dinner every single Friday night and made our own challah and did all of these things and went to, uh, went to services every single Shabbat. And then we rolled around to Yom Kippur and all of a sudden, all of these people showed up who I'd never seen before. And I was just kind of, I didn't really know what to do with it. I was watching this process happen and I was really actually very sad for everyone around me because I felt like they hadn't had the gift of the entire cycle of the year leading up to that moment. Every time I go to services or, or observe the holiday, I feel like I'm just like looking at it from the outside. And so I'm interested to sort of, it was really fun to take this dive because it was another way to sort of do that and take a step forward. So, all right, let's talk about Yom Kippur and Torah. So there's a couple of times that it comes in. It comes in in Leviticus, in Leviticus 16 and 23 and Numbers 29. So first, let's take apart what that word means. So Kippur comes from the word kafar, which means pitch. And it is often translated as atonement. But it's first used in the story of Noah. And it's one of my favorite pieces. So when Noah is instructed to build the ark, he is told to cover the inside and the outside of the ark. Um, this is in Genesis 16 in, in pitch. And so I love that metaphor of pitch as Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, because I think it has a lot to teach us. So, so what is... What does it mean to cover something with pitch? I'm going to ask you guys that. What does it mean to sort of cover something up with pitch? Oh, dear. You didn't tell me this was going to be closed, oh, Miriam. You didn't warn me. She's asking the questions now. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Miriam, take this one. You're the Torah scholar. Oh, my the two God. Of us. Panicking, panicking. Is it like hidden and revealed? It's this aspect of, of hiddenness. You're, you're sort of covering up something that it existed before. You're adding this layer. And it's, yeah, it's like you're hiding sort of what was before, but you're not pretending it wasn't there. You know, when you cover something with pitch, it's a really messy process and you create this new layer, um, almost like this new layer of skin or a callus over what was before, but you don't pretend it wasn't there. You know, it's not like you cover it up and it doesn't exist before. And I think that that's sort of the process of Yom Kippur is this process of acknowledging the holes, acknowledging sort of where you need to protect yourself or create another layer and then covering it up, but knowing it's still there. So that's piece one. Kippur means atonement, but it also is this process of sort of like recovering or, you know, coming back to a slightly different place of who you are in your soul of sort of doing this process of putting pitch on your soul, but knowing it's still, you know, your soul is still what it was, but it, you're adding this extra layer on. So that's one piece that I find really interesting. And then it also goes on to sort of detail how you're supposed to observe the holiday. And I think one thing, obviously it's, it's a holiday that the priests sort of lead us through. And there's this whole process of, of the sacrifices that we make. And we'll go into that a little bit more later. But it's also a day where you are meant to sort of humble your soul. And so in Leviticus 16, um, verse 31, it says, it shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for you and you shall practice self-denial. It is a law for all time. Um, that is a really horrific translation of a really interesting verse. 
And I think we often, even though it's a day where we all gather, I think we often lose this idea of it being not just a day of personal reflection and affliction, but of communal reckoning and sort of this moment of looking at who you are in community and how you are impacting others and noticing that and being, being really very brutally honest with yourselves and your community. I, I keep coming back to this image in my head of a young Hannah, future rabbi, maybe you didn't know it at this point, seeing all these twice-a-year Jews, and I am one, no offense, twice-a-year Jews, I am one of you, showing up at synagogue for Yom Kippur with you thinking about this idea of covering. And the first thing you said, what, what do you think of when you think of covering? I'm like, cover your ass for another year because you didn't go to synagogue all year long, buddy. This is, <laughs> this is your day to set things straight. And uh, I, I have thought about it like that often. This, this weight, like you have, this weight is approaching with Yom Kippur to make things right. You go to synagogue, but like those other people you experienced in your childhood, I wasn't there the other 51 weeks of the year for Shabbat services, but fascinating to, to think about you experiencing Jewish life in that way from the other side where I was not. I want to go more into, um, into the description of, of Yom Kippur and what the Tanakh says about how Jews were supposed to observe this holiday thousands of years ago. So they were supposed to not work. And there was also this process of this like communal ritual of Azazel, of the scapegoating process. But it was really this, this day of sort of gathering and humbling ourselves and fasting and observing complete rest, you know, like complete, complete rest, it's often translated as. And so a Shabbat Shabbaton, it's this idea of the greatest Shabbat, um, Shabbat meaning obviously to stop and rest, but Shabbat also meaning it comes from the same root as the word shuv, to return. It's this day of sort of returning to this really deep reflective place of rest. Oh, and I think one other thing that's really interesting is when this day falls in the calendar in our lives now, but then in an agrarian society, thousands of years ago, this would have been sort of the moment where you would have finished the harvest and you actually would have a moment to pause and reflect. I think that's very hard for us to hold on to now as it's a moment where we're gearing up for the school year and everything is launching and it's like the biggest of the big moments. If you think about it as an agrarian lifestyle moment, it's like, wow, you've worked so hard farming all summer. And all of a sudden you're at this moment of right before the final, you know, celebration of the harvest with Sukkot. And you have actually a moment to sit and reflect and be with yourself and rest. And it's also the seventh month of the year in the biblical calendar. The months start with Nisan. It actually, the months don't really have names at that point. The months gave, were given names in Babylonian exile. So it starts with the first month, which is when Pesach happens. And the cycle goes from there. This is sort of at the end of the farming cycle, obviously leading into Sukkot as we celebrate the harvest. I think we've lost a little bit of that because I think it's really hard right now. You know, I'm, I'm like gearing up for the start of the year as well. And it's, it's really hard to actually in this moment, pause and reflect. Now, you gave me the perfect segue into my next question when you mentioned that this is the seventh month and the number seven is extremely meaningful in Judaism 
In what ways does Yom Kippur connect to this Jewish idea of sacred time existing in multiples of seven? Yes, it's the seventh month. And seven is so significant in Judaism. It's, it's this cycle, starting with creation. Obviously, Shabbat is the seventh day. And so everything about the cycle of Jewish time existing in sevens is rooted in this idea of Shabbat, of seven, the seventh moment being the moment where you pause, you reflect, you notice what you've done, you observe the creation that has existed, and you get to sort of be in that moment. As I said, Shabbat means to stop, it means to rest, it means to return, it means to sit uh, and sort of be. And so you can see echoes of this all throughout Jewish the Jewish calendar. You know, Shavuot comes seven weeks after Passover. It's another moment to sort of like look back and and look, notice what happened, and acknowledge the the first harvest. And so then we have the seventh month, and it's a moment where you stop and you pause and you reflect. And then in the Jewish calendar, we're also commanded to take a sabbatical year, as uh, the seventh year, as a moment to take a break. Can you imagine taking an entire year to sort of let either your ground rest or your soul rest in a really significant way? But we're told to do that. We're told to sort of take these moments in sevens as a moment to rest and reflect and reconnect with who we're meant to be. I totally missed that in 2018. That was my, that was supposed to be my Sabbath year. Damn. A lot of the things that we kind of read about in the in the Torah when it comes to the observance of Yom Kippur, they are serious. It is heavy. You've got the Kohen Gadol, the, the high priest on that day. He goes into the, the temple on that day alone into the Holy of Holies to really commune with God. There's such a weight and emphasis to that day. There's some very interesting practices that are mentioned in the Torah or developed afterwards. So from the biblical age onward, there seems to have been this concept of substitution for our sins. In the Torah, we're introduced to the idea of a scapegoat. So we're going to talk a bit now about Azazel, Kaparod, and Tashlich. So Azazel, for anyone who's talked to me, <laughs> they know that this is like one of my favorite, one of my favorite references in the Torah, because this idea makes a lot of people very uncomfortable and awkward. So on Yom Kippur, uh, in biblical times, the Kohen Gadol was supposed to give a burnt offering to God because back then Jews did animal sacrifice. Of course, we don't do that anymore. Um, that's been replaced with instituted prayer. But at the time, goat sacrifice. So sacrifice to God and also a sacrifice to Azazel. What is Azazel? So he would confess the sins of the community, then either throw the goat um, off a cliff or let it wander into the wilderness for Azazel. So is Azazel a place in the wilderness to send your sacrificial goat or a demon of the empty space that must be appeased to guarantee the safety of your community for the next year? So I want to know first what you think, because I, th I know that this is just such a passive demon, story. Demon. Demon. It's a demon. <laughs> Hundred percent, million percent convinced. But I actually don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledge. Like, and we've talked about this on the podcast before in our episodes about Jewish demonology. There's nothing wrong in acknowledging that Judaism has had a place for demons. Demons are just angels with different jobs in Judaism. So I don't think necessarily it's. I know maybe some people are like, oh, I don't like this, but I think it's cool and it's fine to to note that this was a thing. And maybe we don't know the extent of how they viewed the balance between God and Azazel. How did they work? Like, what? why both? Like, there was a balance that must be maintained. So that's very interesting. But 
Yeah, my personal feeling is a demon. Yeah, what I I don't know if I have a strong opinion on that, but I do think that there's something so significant about sending the goat to the wilderness. I think that that, yeah. you know, it doesn't necessarily matter to me what the destination is. I think it's it's about what that I, I was just trying, I like, I spent the last couple of days just trying to get into my, into the mindset of what this was like for these people to watch this process. And obviously wilderness is really significant in Torah. The wilderness is mm-hmm. where the people were formed in them. We say wilderness, but um, the Hebrew is midbar, which is also the word it, the word comes from the root daber to speak. And so I think that there's just like, there's this like, it echoed to me of this like really la- loudly of this idea of you're sending this go out into the wilderness where, which means to speak where God spoke to the Israelites. And it sort of, to me, felt like this like rebirth moment of saying, okay, we're going to send all of our sins out. We're going to put them into the wilderness. We're going to just like, let's go. Bye. And somehow maybe they'll be sort of reborn in this process. Maybe they'll go through this, this like re, re, reprocessing of, of what happened. And it reminded me a lot of the golden calf, obviously at the foot of Mount Sinai, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and finds the people worshiping this golden calf, it, it felt sort of like, okay, the wilderness is where we, we send our, our sins and we acknowledge them and we notice them and reprocess them. And maybe we can then move forward. And that's sort of what that, you know, that moment exists. It, you know, you have to acknowledge it and notice it. And then once you acknowledge it and notice it, then you have the ability to move forward. So I, I sort of saw this, this putting of the goat out into the wilderness as this process of being like, all right, we're going to, we're going to acknowledge everything we did together as a community. We're going to put it on this goat. And we're going to send it out. Poor goat. poor goat. I know, I know the poor goat, but we're going to. I do actually very much feel for that goat. <laughs> yeah, but there's, you know, the Jewish people are a wilderness formed people okay. in a way. And we certainly are, our uh, biggest biblical figures are Moses being number one, shaped entirely by his experiences in the wilderness and wandering and returning and wandering. And we as a people too. So both on an individual level and as a peoplehood level, it, it makes sense. It tracks. That we interact with the wilderness still. I also wanted to just side note, this uh, has given rise to my favorite curse, which is Lech Azazel, like go to Azazel, like the equivalent of go to hell. Um, and I do love that. So that's, it yeah, such... I should yell at people in the car, Lech Azazel. But so, so the bigger question to me is if the practice of sacrificing to Azazel, which is in the Torah, no one can deny that it's there, kind of led to some other later folk customs about transferring your sins onto other things. So we've got the custom of kaparot, which a lot of people do before, um, the, right before Yom Kippur, either with a chicken, um, they, they put their sins onto the chicken or into like they put it on sadaka charity and give it to charity. And there's also the practice of tashlich, which you do um, after Rosh Hashanah, where you throw metaphorically throw your sins into a body of water. And both of these things are observed to this day. Do you think there's an element from the Azazel practice that informs that? I think there has to be. I, I think there's something really deep within us that wants to 
purge ourselves a little bit of our sins. And I don't know what it means that we want to put it onto another animal. That Yeah, can we just leave them alone? <laughs> no, really. That doesn't what really resonate do? today. Leave the fish and the chickens alone. <laughs> but there is something and I I, I sort of want to I, I wonder what that is about our desire to take what is our our moment of missing the mark, sin, the word that we use for sin is usually chet, which sort of means just to miss the mark, like an archer misses the mark. So what is it about that process of like, okay, we miss the mark. I really want to get this out there and not just out there out of my, like by verbally out of my body, but I want to put it into, I want to put it out of myself and into something else. Like, what is that? I, I they're try- Well, in a way, like, isn't it trying to make it someone else's problem? Although, um, because it's so serious, Yom Kippur is so serious. And there's this idea of being signed and sealed for health, for life, for the next year. You know, you don't want to take any chances. So I, I look at it like insurance policy. This chicken now has all my flaws. <laughs> I, I'm know, still great. I'm thinking about it now. And I think about all these symbolic practices we do. Like when we open a building, we take this giant pair of novelty scissors and cut a giant ribbon and it has no meaning. <laughs> not not a Jewish practice, but yes. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a physical manifestation of opening. You are now open because a ribbon was cut. Totally meaningless. But to me, I, I feel that urge to go do this practice of dropping a stone in the water or whatever it is, where you can actually just, you can see the physical manifestation of the act that you're trying to do in your head. And it may be create mm-hmm. the space and mood for you to perform that act more effectively. So totally disagree with spinning chickens. I love chickens, one of my favorite animals. I will never eat them. But I do think a rock or a pebble can serve as a good kind of fill in for animal abuse well, in this I, case. I think I'm thinking of this piece of we we use this phrase of releasing our demons. You know, and mm. when I think of Azazel, release your Azazel. Yeah, release your Azazel. You know, maybe it's that uh I it's this piece of when you put something physically outside of yourself whether it's, you know, in talking with a therapist or a dear friend, or even, you know, I even see people talk about what it means to sort of release some of their darker pieces on social media or in the world, or just in a more, you know, an upfront way. I think there's something really meaningful about that process of release. And when I practice Tashlik with, with my students, sometimes I'll use, I'll have them write down something on a piece of color diffusing paper, which is paper where you, you, it's basically a coffee filter, but it, um, when you get it wet, when you put it in water, it dissolves away. And I think that there's Mm -hmm. something really nice about seeing a physical process of, you know, diffusing or releasing or putting it outside of yourself. And I think sometimes when you give it, you know, we do that when we say, you know, my demons or, you know, we give it this like physical manifestation. Yeah, I mean, this is why I I burned my ex husband in effigy. Like <laughs> you do this to get rid of things. Heavy stuff. So I think that took it a makes turn. Sense. <laughs> it makes sense. No, but that resonates. People do want. That's why people. You know, it's a symbolic cleansing right. in a way that you're just like this. Get this thing away from me. I am casting it forth from my life, and it's now outside of my life. Right. So that makes sense to me. And I think that it's moved from being sort of more of a communal practice to being more of an individual practice. Uh, I think we have a really hard time in our modern lives associating this Yom Kippur as a communal process. We see it as very personally, deeply reflective. At best, at worst, you're just really hungry and you want to go home. <laughs> but at best, it's this like deeply personal, individual experience. But I think 
the process of sending the goat to Azazel was really about the community. The goat was supposed to come from the community. So it's right. like, it's not yes. just about, it's not you personally, like your one, your one sin to one goat. It's like your whole communal piece, like, okay, let's send that out from our midst and let's, let's purposely send it away from our community and say like, that's not what we want anymore. You know, it's like a very communal releasing of the demons. So I think that's a really interesting piece as well. And I think, you know, we do, we do this piece of Tashli or Kapara, like that is sort of done individually, but in community. But I think that this was meant to sort of be a communal humbling of our souls piece as well. Mm. So yeah, I think that, I mean, there's so much there. It's so interesting. It's a fascinating, fascinating practice. I tell everybody about it. Dan, do you, can you attest that I tell everybody about it and won't shut up about Azazel? It is one of your go-to demons. I gotta tell you. Yes, it is. <laughs> Way better than Lilith. Don't talk to me about Lilith. She's over. She's done. That was last year. Too mainstream. Too, Too mainstream. mainstream. Yeah. So a Mishnah, which is an oral Torah teaching, says that there was never a day as joyous as the Day of Atonement. This is a quote. And women of Jerusalem wore all white and danced in the vineyards to find a husband, unquote. Um, Which seems like quite a different vibe from Yom Kippur now. I don't think anyone should look for a spouse while hangry, first of all. But this really is in conflict with this perception of Yom Kippur being a sad and somber day. It's not Tisha B'Av, which is the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. It's not actually like that. There's this balance between taking it very seriously, but as you said, a Shabbat of Shabbat, of Shabbats, a celebration, a confluence of sevens, a really joyous day. What do you make of that dichotomy? So this goes back to my outsider Yom Kippur perspective. I was always, it always made me so sad that people were like seeing Judaism in the twice a year moment as this moment of like, let's be so somber and like, let's not even talk to one another. Let's just like be in our own spaces and be so, let's make ourselves feel really sad. That never really resonated well with me. I'm much more of a joy Judaism kind of person. And I think if you see it in this way of releasing, so I think that if you go back to this idea of releasing our demons, there's like a lot of joy associated with that. You feel lighter. You feel like you've like lost the metaphor load on your shoulder, the devil on your shoulder, the Azazel on your shoulder. And yeah, I think that there could be this feeling of like, wow, I'm getting all of this out there. I'm, I'm noticing it about myself. I'm putting it out there communally and I'm in this process with other people. And we can feel this like sense of joy and rest in that moment. Reflection doesn't have to be something that makes you feel worse. It could, you know, and I think there's a lot of guilt associated with Yom Kippur. I think, you know, you sort of brought that up in this like idea of like dreading the two times a year that you go to synagogue of like, and the guilt that you feel about, you know, when you, once you enter of like, I haven't been here in a while. I think there's a lot of guilt associated, but I think think it could be a space that feels incredibly joyful. It could be a space of feeling like, wow, look how far we've come. We're at the seventh month. We've come through this whole process. Let's look back. Let's notice where we were right, where we went wrong, how we've been doing as a community and how we've been sort of, how we can sort of reckon our actions. And let's feel so much joy in that aspect of, of releasing it communally together. And you notice that the piece about judgment, it's sort of in the Tanakh. Um, it's not really as deeply in there. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like, there's this piece of like, if you don't do this, you're going to be punished. But it's it's also, you know, sort of like, yeah, of course you'll be punished. If you don't go through processes of reflection and release, you're going to feel 
much heavier. You're going to feel much more disconnected from your community. And I think that's a totally different way of looking at it. And Shabbat. Okay. So let's talk about Shabbat for a second. So Shabbat, again, all of these moments, you can kind of look at it in two different ways. You can look at Shabbat as it's the day where I don't get to check my phone or I don't get to drive to see my friends or I don't get to do all of these things. You can look at all the things you can't do and it can feel really restricting. And at various points in my life, I've been much more Shabbat observant than at others. I've been there. I feel you. <laughs> so it can be something that feels really restricting, or it can be this moment of just joy and celebration and community. I, as an adult, hosted Shabbat dinner for the first time a couple of years ago. And even though it wasn't necessarily a Shabbat observant community, in fact, many of my guests weren't even Jewish, I still asked everyone to put their phones in a bowl at the door. And Everyone was chatting until 3 a.m. You know, it just felt so natural. You know, we were so wonderfully disconnected from the rest of our lives. And no one was, because everyone's phone was in a bowl, we had no idea what time it was. And we finally looked and we were like, oh my gosh, we've just been celebrating together with food and community for this like incredibly joyous moment. And rest can be just like incredibly joyous and fulfilling and rewarding. And so if this is the Shabbat of Shabbat Shabbaton, the Shabbat of all Shabbats, the, the, the biggest of these moments, it could feel like the ultimate sense of joy and rejoicing and reflection and connection to other people. It just takes away, you know, the food element is, is sort of taken away in our observance of it, which makes it a lot harder to feel that like wonderful sense of celebration. So let me get to that food element because I'm a big fan of food. I like to eat at least three meals a day. And I am representing Temple Isaiah, where I grew up. And I'm going to ask you a question from the book of Isaiah, my temple's namesake. How does the book of Isaiah contradict this status quo understanding of Yom Kippur fasting, which for me, and I think growing up at least, uh, that was the central part of the holiday. I ain't going to eat. I'm going to be really hungry. And around four o'clock, I'm going to try to play Madden or something so I can take my mind off of how hungry I am, except I'm not supposed to do that. Is, is there, <gasps> it's our interesting Yom Kippur practice. <laughs> it, it's not actually, yeah, it's not official, but it was an unofficial Yom Kippur practice. So how does Isaiah contradict this idea yeah. of fasting? So I think we get a little bit obsessed with fasting and I have a really hard time if I am pra- observing the practice of fasting, I have a really hard time thinking about anything other than the fact that I'm hungry. And Isaiah 58 says, basically, is this the fast that I desire? You know, that you're just sort of like ripping yourselves apart in this fasting process, but not noticing all of the injustice in your world. If you're not, you know, how can you be fasting and think that's enough? If you're not also noticing that there are people who are hungry within your midst, that there are there's total injustice in your land. And again, I think it speaks back to that idea of it being a communal process of noticing where you are and what where you've gone wrong. There are people who are really hungry and there is so there you know there's there's people who are not being treated with justice in our world. If you're not noticing that then it's not saying don't fast but it's saying that's not enough. It's not enough to just be in your internal experience of fasting if it's not going to lead to you making a difference in the world, to you noticing what's around you and, and actually wanting to improve. You know, if you're just sort of going through this process of like, I'm fasting and I'm so miserable, you know, I just want my cup of coffee and I didn't realize how reliant I was on it until just this moment. You know, if you're just in that, 
you're missing kind of the whole point of the day. And it, you know, I don't know if that means don't fast, but I think it can mean that's not enough. That's like really not the, it's not the point. You know, we, we sort of tend to latch onto things and be like, is that it? Like fasting. Okay. Check done. I fasted and I went to the synagogue. I've done enough. But I think they're saying, if you're not looking around you and seeing your world with really honest eyes, and if you're not willing to put the pitch, the layers of pitch on that are needed to rebuild a better world, a more, a more just world, then you're not doing it. You're not there. Yeah. I, I love this idea that some organizations do this, and I know CJP has done it in years past, but fast to feed, where basically every dime or every you know can of food or every item of food that you were going to eat or purchase, you either give that food or that money to a local food bank or mm-hmm. an, another organization that's helping people who are hungry. So you see the direct connection between foregoing something so that someone else can eat. And that, that was a, always a really beautiful thing for me. And I think, you know, we should maybe focus on that again this year, given all the food insecurity that we have, you know, around the pandemic and unemployment and those kind of things. Right. I think that's so important. And can you get out of your own head when you're fasting and not just think about, oh my gosh, I can't wait for a bagel. And I miss coffee. If you can tell, I'm a little bit of a coffee obsessed person. Um, you and me both. Yeah. It's a very difficult moment. But if you can get out of your own head and and just the me, me, me of it all. And instead, if you can think this is, I'm feeling hunger for one day, I'm feeling one day's worth of what it feels like to be experiencing hunger. That's an immense, immense thing. Uh, I was talking to a friend who's a teacher and she said, obviously she teaches in the Boston public schools. And she said at the very end of the semester, she went around and she gave little goodie bags to all of her students. And in that moment, she noticed that one of her students looked like he hadn't eaten in three months and he'd still been getting great grades and participating and been such an inspiring member of her classroom. And yet she noticed that he wasn't being fed in this time. And if we're not looking around this Yom Kippur and noticing the children who aren't being fed because they don't have a school lunch, then we've missed it. We've, we we're not, we haven't done it. We, we are truly not addressing the food insecurity alone that is existing within our country as it is right now. And I think, yeah, that's a great point. That's, that's a humbling thing to notice. You know, that is a communal humbling that we need to go through, but then we need to do something. You know, we can't just feel like we fasted, we noticed it. That's enough. You have to then somehow move it to action, which is what Isaiah 58 is all about. It's saying that's not enough. Go on and do something and, and, notice what's wrong with your society. So like all of Judaism, time and history have shaped how we practice Yom Kippur from these biblical origins that we've talked about. Kol Nidre, for example, uh, is a legal recitation that Jews say at the very beginning of Yom Kippur. It's very moving. It's very powerful tunes. And during Kol Nidre, you you disavow oaths you may have taken during the past year. And that's very interesting because the historical basis for that is for Jews who were forced to convert to back out of it for Yom Kippur because they were forced by external forces to, to convert to other faiths. But they're renouncing that in Kol Nidre. Uh, So this is just an example of a historical thing that happened and Jews changed something about Yom Kippur to fit that historical reality. So what are some other 
developments and changes that have evolved over time in the Yom Kippur liturgy or practice due to strange, dangerous, challenging circumstances? Well, I think big picture, the story of the Jewish people is is that, you know, what you said of sort of responding to what is happening in our world and changing what we do to reflect it. Uh, even the fact that we have a prayer service, <laughs> uh, even that prayer is the way we observe Yom Kippur rather than ritual sacrifice, that's it's huge. That is way less cleanup, way less cleanup, <laughs> a lot less messy. I can't even imagine fasting and making an animal sacrifice at the same time. It'd be like driving, you know, fasting and driving past a barbecue restaurant. But I think that there's this like incredible resilience that comes with reimagination in Judaism. And the way that we, that we do that is by taking an honest look at what we're doing and saying that doesn't work anymore. You know, what the rabbis did with prayer coming out of the exile is just, it's inspiring because it gives you permission to say, okay, we have to do things very differently this year and, or not this year, but in this time that we're in and how do we adjust it? So I don't know specifically necessarily, I think the Kol Nishai example is such a beautiful one um, around young people, but I do think it's this like incredible narrative in Judaism is this story of resilience and adaptation and realizing that the way that we've always done it, we can reinterpret it. We can reinterpret the sitting out of the goats into Tashlich as a much more fitting way to do it in our modern lives. But all of that is just, it's, it's, it's really kind of inspiring to me. It means that we have freedom to say, okay, it can look really differently, but it still holds that meaning. As long as the intention is there, we're still holding this, the values of the holiday, this moment that we are supposed to observe forever. And, you know, in the, in the Torah, it says, this is something that you are going to observe forever. Leolam. It's kind of crazy because we don't observe it in the exact same way that it's observed in Torah, but we do observe it. You know, here we are thousands of years later, and we're still observing it and noticing this day on this, you know, the 10th day of the seventh month of the year, we're still observing so it doesn't matter necessarily if it's if it looks a little bit different, but it's we can sort of find a new way to invigorate it. We've talked a little bit about difficult times and Yom Kippur ob- observing through difficult times. And obviously we are in, uh, if not as difficult as other times in our history, a very challenging and unique time where coronavirus has made it so that Jews who get together to celebrate are required or should be a part. How does that change our ritual? How does that change our understanding of Yom Kippur this year? And what do you think history has taught us about getting through this high holiday cycle in the midst of a of a pandemic? Well, I think that there's what history has taught us is that we're at one of those moments where enormous changes are going to happen in the way that we shape Judaism. So just a small example the synagogue where I've been an educator for many, many years, like many others, has obviously started to host virtual Shabbat services each week. And well, initially that was sort of like a disappointing thing of, you know, we miss being in the sanctuary and we miss connecting in person and singing together. What it actually turned into is the highest attendance for any Shabbat services. We've, you know, it's the same number of people were coming to Shabbat services as 
virtually as we're coming to Shabbat services, not Shabbat services, we're coming to services on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It was like that number of people were showing up each week because it was accessible. You know, you could be wherever you were. People who moved away were still able to access services. People who are in college were still able to access services. People who are empty nesters were able to, and homebound were able to access services. So I think it's going to, that is going to impact the way that we act in Judaism for years to come. We notice that we can do some of these ways of connecting in a way that is distanced and it makes us be much more intentional about the why we're connecting. You know, it's not enough to just show up at the synagogue this year for Yom Kippur and be seen and maybe skip your breakfast in order to feel like you've checked off the the box of I did Yom Kippur. You know, if you really want to do it, you're going to have to be much more intentional about your connections. You're going to have to think about why you're showing up and how it is that you're showing up and which pieces of it are much more meaningful to you because physically being somewhere is not, you know, that's not possible, but intentionally being present, I think still is. So I'm really curious as to how this year is going to impact not just this year and not just this time of being in pandemic, but really how we connect as Jews moving forward, because we're going to, we're going to see, you know, it's going to be one of those moments that is going to completely alter, I think, the trajectory of our resilient Jewish narrative, if we let it, and if we sort of embrace the challenges and also the opportunity to sort of reset our intentions communally together. Well, Hannah, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this amazing knowledge with us and our listeners. Thank you so much. This was so much fun for me. I really enjoyed this. And Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review the vibe of the tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thank you to our editor, Jesse, who thankfully does not require payment in goat sacrifice. Stay safe, wear a mask, and may we all be signed and sealed for a healthy and happy new year ahead. 